0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Wonderful, as always, to have Sally Rippon in the studio. She's creator of the Polly and Buster series for young readers and also Billy B. Brown and she's our monthly guide to the world of children's literature and hello.
1: Hi, it's really good to be in here again.
0: And you never know who you might bring in and this morning we've got uh, the owner of one of Victoria's newest children's bookstores, uh, Kristen Proud, welcome. Um, Thank you. Kristen's a youth worker and proprietor of the Squishy Mini bookstore in Kyneton and I actually haven't had the privilege of going to your store yet but maybe you should Give us a bit of background on why you set it up. Definitely. Um, we moved to Kyneton a few years ago
2: and I was working in the community sector. Um, so my background's in mental health, often working with young people with trauma backgrounds. Um, then we had a baby and I decided I needed something a little bit lighter to do in terms of work. Uh, We've noticed the demographic around and the Macedon Ranges has changed a lot in the last few years, lots of young families moving up to the area and in talking to people, a lot of them were travelling to Melbourne to get specialised children's books and young adult books. Um, and I had been working um, with a queer LGBTI group of young people in my previous work as well and knew that those young people couldn't get books. Locally, around, you know, representing them and characters that they felt they connected with. So we decided
0: to open the bookshop. That was <laughs> it, really. Amazing. And I think you've already... You've been there, Sally.
3: Yeah. You've
1: I been
0: everywhere. I
1: <laughs> think I might have been one of your first authors, I think. And it's yeah. such a beautiful store and it has this really light, warm... well It's a big size store and the second part of the store... Uh, you set up to feel like a real hub. So there's cushions and there's a lot of books that you can browse. And I know that that was your intention is to create a a little bit of a safe space. And as a part of that, you've also been running these incredible book clubs. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about some of the book clubs that you run?
2: Yeah, so we've got um, book clubs for primary school aged and younger high school groups and another book club for adults that read um, YA books. All of the book clubs have been amazingly popular. Um, I think hopefully because we're doing them well but also I think it's a reflection of a lack of those sorts of clubs in regional areas as well so we've got wait lists for all of the book clubs um so we just choose a book each month and the kids read it and then we get together and talk about it Um, the book clubs are meant to be fun but the biggest thing I think is um helping children to be able to critique books and say what they do and don't like about something and why and feel safe enough to do that it's okay if they don't like something and all their friends do, that kind of thing. So,
3: yeah. You make it sound really easy, like you just decided to set up a, a bookshop and then the next day it was, it was kind of there. <laughs> Did it take a, a while to kind of um, nurture and, and get to know the community in and around Kyneton to kind of create that space that, that you've now got down there?
2: Uh, Yeah, look, it wasn't that easy. Um, I think having worked in the community sector in Clienton was really helpful because I had an idea of what was missing and what might be embraced. Um, But setting up the bookshop itself was really full on and difficult. So just from sourcing books through publishers, deciding what I wanted um, and curating the book selection and having a bit of a vision around what the space would look like um, was really, really tricky. But I think had I not known the local community, it wouldn't have worked. Mm. Um, and
1: and yeah. how did you learn all those things on the job? I'm coming from a completely different field. I mean, even basic things like um, how how did you know how to stock the book shop when you first started i mean obviously you read a lot of children's books now and you get a lot of input from your customers but what what was the first what were on your first shelves um i had no idea
2: i had no idea what i was doing i still feel like i don't have any idea most <laughs> days it's doing okay <laughs> um, So it's been a big learning curve. I think I just, the internet, the internet was amazing. So I did research around where do you get books for a bookshop? Mm. Um, And there's a publisher's uh, database that you can sign up for, which will tell you which books are with which
0: publishers and
2: just went from there. Yeah. That was it. Well, that sounds
0: amazing. I suppose, you know, I mean, we've talked a lot about how strong the children's sort of end of the the book market is. And I, I suppose we can kind of leave behind now this idea of the book is, dead you know I think we've just kind of had those conversations and we know that there is a market for local literature and also children's books and we have specialised bookstores here for children in in Melbourne but I wonder what it's like though to compete when you're in a, a regional centre like Kyneton when mm. people are travelling to the city and back every day and there is online stores and all that sort of stuff how, how do you make that work?
2: Yeah I think one of the most important things for me In anything that I do is that my interactions are genuine and authentic and that's really the premise of the shop. So the idea hopefully is that someone would come to us for a book because they know that we've gotten to know their children. I know what they read last time and they did and didn't like and where they're at for their next book and can suggest things that might stretch them or challenge them or suggest something that's just going to be a fun, good read, which would be different to buying online or going to a bigger bookshop where they're not known. Um, And the local community, Kyneton's amazing. The Macedon Rangers are amazing, really supportive of small business and knowing that for small businesses to succeed, they have to buy from them. So a book might cost a couple more dollars to buy from an independent bookstore, but you do get that personalised sort of interaction that you wouldn't get online.
3: And I mean, people's buying intentions and, and, and books that they think their children might like are, are obviously heavily swayed by social media and, and reviews and so on. But I guess having that personal contact with someone who who runs a local bookstore gives them a bit more of a, I guess, specific or engaged perspective on what their child might like than from just reading a, a random review somewhere.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think having a conversation with a child, no matter how old, if the if the child's old enough to have a conversation then we we try really hard to have the dialogue with the child about what they've read that they really enjoyed um as well as taking into consideration what parents are asking for um but really trying to be focused on the child or the young person themselves um so that they're getting something from the book um there's so many amazing books so many amazing books around well
0: so. i noticed i mean clearly your your um uh, community and, and the customers of your store have good taste because I noticed one of your books um, Sally was on one of the the, the favorite lists for um <laughs> we oh, haven't even that- said the books and have squishy mini we should um, say is the, is the bookshop we're talking about in Kinton. Um, yeah they clearly know what they should be reading absolutely yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but interesting you touched on the idea of not really having uh done much in social media before you opened the bookstore now you're very present because I, that's certainly how I came across you and I know that you post a lot on there but one of the interesting things you were chatting with me about when I met with you earlier was about how powerful social media presence is for young people in deciding what to read and we were talking a little bit before um, before we came into the studio about blogger reviewers and how powerful they can become. Them. Not everybody listening will we understand exactly what that is can you talk a little bit about what that means yeah so I think um
2: as with other areas of life these days I think not dissimilar um in the book world there are bloggers who might post reviews or opinions about a book often accompanied by a beautiful stylized photo of a book that maybe has taken a long time to photograph um And they can really dramatically influence whether or not a book sells. Um, And it's one of the things that's been a real challenge for me, I think, in opening the bookshop and realising that if something... Appears to be popular, then people are going to ask for it, whether or not that's the case. Mm. But in the reverse, I think I've seen some instances where bloggers have um, not liked a book that's actually been really well written and quite fantastic. And it's meant then that people haven't bought it and don't want it because a popular person has basically said, don't read this. And
1: who are these bloggers? Are they young people themselves? Generally not.
2: They don't, not from what I've seen. So, yeah, it's a new, one of the new things that I'm just learning about i think um but mostly early 20s or so and they're doing some amazing work as well they're really assisting getting a higher profile for especially aussie ya books Mm. Um, which is fantastic. Uh, But on the flip side, as with anything, I think, is sometimes people are just accepting the information that's being put to them on social media and not critiquing it. Mm. Now,
0: I wonder, Sally, if this um, goes to some of the conversations we've had before um, in this segment about criticism and the fact that children's literature, maybe it's changing a little bit now, but really isn't present in established media that's
1: right uh, of a a
0: real culture of criticism of of children's books
1: yeah and look I think it's even harder for obviously younger children because they're not on social media or or most parents are avoiding them being on the internet Um, so they're not really getting coverage in standard media I think as Kristen touched upon that a lot of the social media presence has been really helpful for young adult books because there are young adults interacting quite a lot on social media and they're writing fan fiction that kind of thing but it's partly why I do this show really because there isn't really much out there that covers kids books and even because parents and teachers and educators don't really have time to read all of the books so that's when it can be handy to read something in a paper or hear something on a radio or go to see a specialist bookstore and you you were saying recently that teachers are also now coming to you to get recommendations of what to read with their kids
2: yeah and I think that comes back to what you just said Sally around teachers just being so um, busy and overworked and overwhelmed and being able to speak to an independent um, bookstore about hey this is what I'm seeing in my classroom these are the reading abilities I'm looking for something along these lines can you suggest something mm. rather than them having to go through the internet or search through a bookstore themselves. So using independent booksellers as a, as a resource because that's what they're there for. Um, mm. And that's fun for us as well, I think. I find that really enjoyable. So, yeah.
3: and, and obviously you have very close networks with um, local authors and, and teachers and so on. What about with other independent bookstore owners? Do you often kind of catch up and, and talk about common issues or, or challenges in that particular industry?
2: Because I'm in a regional area, I don't get to, but um, definitely had contact with some of the Melbourne specialist bookstores who have been amazingly supportive. Um, and I know that they, the specialist children's bookstores, do catch up, and we're invited to those catch ups, but I haven't been able to make it. So w- another challenge I think of being in a regional area for for adults and young people and being a little bit isolated. But definitely, I've been blown away by the collegial relationship with with children's booksellers in particular. Um, and before opening the store, I didn't have any connections to authors or illustrators. So authors and illustrators have come out of the woodwork to support us, um, which has been amazing. Mm-hmm. So I started from not having any contact with anyone, not not necessarily, you know, knowing how prevalent Sally was even, um, to having just all of this support. From booksellers, from the local community, from authors and illustrators. So, what, it, yeah. what
0: about adults? So, is there an adult bookstore? Adult bookstore sounds wrong, doesn't it? <laughs> but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there might be. The I mean, they're all legitimate. <laughs> there's all parts of the market. But uh, is there? Are you the children's bookstore, and then there's another bookstore in yeah. town? Is that how it works? Yep, that's how it works. So, there's a generalist generalist bookshop in
2: Kyneton as well. Um, and in the Macedon Rangers there are I think there are five of us all together. We're the specialist bookstore. So there's one in um, Kyneton, Trentham, Woodend, Lancefield have all got bookstores. Um, So we're not short on bookstores. We were very, very clear when we opened that we weren't, um, there's no intent to compete with any other shops that were in the region. The idea was to fill a gap for children and young people. So being really conscious of that in book selection and setting up the store and um, have contact with the other bookshops locally, which is really lovely.
1: And one of the things that you said that's really lovely about having a specialist children's bookstore is that often, particularly in the book clubs, you get kids able to come in and talk without their parents hanging <laughs> over their shoulders. Yep. Uh, can you give us an example of a really lovely book club moment where um, a parent has been out of the scene and you've been able to really, the child has found that space to be able to talk?
2: Yeah, I think um, yeah, the book clubs are enjoyable because of how honest um, the kids are. And recently we read uh, Wonder, which lots of people will know because it's just come out as a movie. Um, the grade four group and one of the little girls in that group then talked about how she had really enjoyed the book because she'd always wanted to understand why kids bully so in in Wonder there is a child that bullies um, the main character and she said because she's been bullied and she never understood why why do they and then this beautiful conversation amongst the other children around why do kids bully and is it because they're not happy with themselves and all of those sorts of discussions that don't necessarily happen if there's other grown-ups or parents in the room, all triggered by a book.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Squishy Minis, the bookstore in kynton Kristen Proud is the owner and uh, we've got Sally Rippon with us as well in the reading room. I'm talking all things children's literature and I've been thinking about that the goal, I suppose, to create this safe space for children and uh, what is the role, do you think, of private kind of businesses to do that? I suppose libraries kind of, you know, I sort of mm. think they should be filling a space like that. I'm not saying they're not in, in kynton but yeah. what is the role, do you think... Um, for, for sort of private business or community organisations to do that? Yeah, I think, I think that's a really tricky question because
2: I think that for small businesses to survive, they don't necessarily see the connection with also having a safe space for people to come into because with a safe space doesn't mean that you're going to sell what you have. So I think it, that's a really hard question to answer. For me, obviously, that was critical in everything that I wanted to do. So having a safe space meant um, wanting to be really clear with local kids and young people that they can just come out, come and hang out after school and look at books and they don't have to buy anything and that, that helps them feel more connected to their community and more empowered and th- that they have somewhere that they belong if they're not feeling that they do belong. I think community organisations and public spaces have much more of a role in that than businesses But I think given how well Squishy Mini has gone in the last 12 months, it demonstrates that there is a place for it and it does work. So, it might be something that other businesses can think about um, how they might want to do something similar.
3: Is there anything else that you would hope to do through Squishy Mini, I guess, in terms of the the community events and and book clubs and so on that you run? Is there anything that you kind of have on the horizon or or would love to be able to facilitate within that space?
2: Yeah, I think... um Sally and I were talking before about um, trying to ensure that all kids have access to books and some of what I've been chatting to other authors about is potentially in the future, I'm not sure how long, but maybe doing some sort of children's YA um, festival in the Macedon Ranges uh, that's you know outside of the bookshop in a public space uh, where people who may not feel comfortable going into bookshops will come and access authors and illustrators and... Um, Yeah, get to feel more connected and be exposed to things that regional kids don't often get to see or um, experience. So, yeah. And it
1: is one of the great things for children's authors when they visit schools, because a lot of us do visit schools, is that it does mean that you're reaching a really broad spectrum of kids, not necessarily the ones whose parents might have access to an independent bookstore. And um, even if it just means that the kid's taking the book on from the library, it does mean that you can reach a broader range of kids than necessarily waiting for them to come to you. And I know you're working a little bit more with the community to try to make sure when authors come to Kyneton that they can be perhaps used in schools as well. So that, that's also a start. Yeah, definitely. We
2: recently had um, Jane Godwin and Anna Walker came up to promote their new children's book and they came and did a story time in the store and then I'd link them in with the local kindergarten to go and read their book at the local kindergarten and that was about six weeks ago, I think, and am still having kids in every week and I hear them, they see the book on the shelf and then they start talking to their parents about the nice ladies that came in and they made that <laughs> book. So those sorts of things, I think, which are everlasting memories that can have an impact on a child that thinks well maybe I could make a book or mm-hmm. yeah gee the
0: teachers must love you <laughs> 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 look what we've arranged yeah, that's, <laughs> right. that's really good and I suppose uh, I mean from from where you sit from a from the, you work as a, as a youth worker or as a um, uh, prior are you are finding that this is is the kind of new um, work the new lease on career choice or whatever it is that um that you're looking for. Yeah,
2: I think so. I feel like um, there's enough depth to be in the bookstore that keeps me engaged because I enjoy complex challenges, hence having worked, I worked in the refugee sector for a very long time as a torture trauma counsellor and in policy development and quite heavy stuff. The bookshop is generally really light and beautiful and fun, but there's still critical moments of important conversations with kids about things that might be going on for them or parents coming in and there's stuff going on with their kids at home and they want a suggestion of a book that might help them through that. So I really enjoy the balance, I think, of, yeah, the, the fun stuff and And I suggest that
1: your background also means that you have a way of connecting with the kids that that they may not have come across before you know not all adults will necessarily know a way into to chat with kids and um you know i'll often see that in signing queues is often parents will talk for their children um whereas you're getting the kids on their own in this safe space where they're allowed to chat with you and they can see that you get them on their level and you have that background you have that expertise and it's a real gift to the community not just kyneton but the children's book community which is probably why you found so much support
0: yeah it's fun I think that's <laughs> the, yeah well, Squishy Mini, um, check it out. Um, either you live in Kiton or you're, you're passing through, and it's uh, really good to get that insight in what it's like to set up something like this. And uh, you know we're great supporters here at Triple R of all things culture. So yeah, um, all power to you. And let's, thank you. Uh, let's hope it continues to go well and Sally we'll catch you again in a month's time. Yeah looking forward to it thanks
3: guys. The practice and thinking behind eugenics has been widely condemned and criticized particularly in the aftermath of the Nazis mission of breeding a master race leading up to and during World War II. Throughout history, though, and to the present day, the consequences of eugenics have reached much more deeply into society, affecting families and individuals in often traumatic ways. Under the guise of science, large numbers of people in different parts of the world have been sterilised, often under false pretenses, as part of attempts to socially engineer a better human race. Rob Wilson is one person who's done a lot of thinking and research into this highly controversial topic. Rob is a professor of philosophy at the Trobe University, author of the brand new book The Eugenic Mind Project, and director of the documentary Surviving Eugenics. His appearing as part of a panel discussion and film screening tomorrow night, facilitated by the Melbourne Free University at the brand new Thornbury Picture House, and joins us today in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. It's great to be here, Dylan. Good morning. Good,
0: Good morning, morning, Rob. And we've had a, like a sneaky peek at this film and you're in it. I and am in it. And I must say that you intrigued me immediately and just separate from the topic because there you are with your Australian accent in the middle of Alberta, uh, really being one of the foremost authorities on the eugenics program that was run, state-sanctioned in that part of Canada. How did that come about? How are you so, um, I suppose, involved with this
4: Uh, Well, I was at the University of Alberta for 17 years. I've only just arrived at La Trobe and one of my areas of specialisation is the philosophy of science, particularly the philosophy of biology. So I used to teach a... Uh, subject there regularly called biology society and values and i would teach a few weeks on eugenics and my own very steep learning curve on that was in the very first few weeks of, of teaching my material where i would normally talk about the evils of nazi eugenics and how american eugenics was nearly as bad and then a couple of the students in the class said yeah we kind of know about this and i said well how do you know about it and they said well my aunt was sterilized uh, in Alberta. And uh, I, I had to ask again, hang on, hang on, hang on. And it turned out that there had been um, qu- quite an active eugenics sterilization program in Alberta, right through until 1972, which maybe for some listeners will sound like a very long time ago. But I peg it by thinking that, um, you know, my mother would be right in that sort of uh, uh, generation uh, directly, uh, somebody who could have well been a target, particularly given my own sort of background, um, from a sort of more working class, less wealthy uh, background, you could easily end up on the wrong side of the tracks. And it turned out that that was pretty much what had happened in Alberta for many, many people. There were nearly 3,000 people sterilised between 1929 and 1972 and, and uh, you know, it depends where you you sit. The, in California, there were 20,000 people sterilised, so that sounds like a lot more. But, of course, the population of California was a lot more. So if you do it per 100,000 people, the rates of sterilisation in Alberta throughout that whole period were amongst the highest of, of anywhere. There were 35 jurisdictions in North America that had this legislation. And then we. I was just immediately drawn in. It immediately changed how I thought about it as this more distantly passed and, and physically removed uh set of policies to something that affected people who were still living in our community. And then within a very short amount of time, I met people um, who were uh, deeply involved in that history as survivors of eugenics. And the reason I was able to do that was that there was a very brave woman, Lolani Muir, who features in the the film, who came forward and uh, actually took the province of Alberta to court for wrongful confinement and sterilisation. And she won... And it was a landmark legal judgment. And in the wake of her case, there were over 900 other cases for wrongful confinement and sterilization filed. And so that told us that there were a lot of people in our community who were still around and and did have the courage to come forward and tell at least part of their story through, say, a legal case because you're going to be cross-examined and you're going to have a lot of information gathered on you about a very unpleasant past. And the consistent sort of story was that And that's the basis for the idea of there being wrongful confinement and sterilization was even in terms of the laws at the time, whatever you think of them, the Alberta government simply didn't follow those laws and rules. So there were criteria for sterilization. They typically centered around being feeble minded or mentally deficient. Uh, But in, for example, Lelani's case, uh, she was admitted to the institution and wasn't properly tested at all. Uh, She was there basically because it turned out her mother didn't want to have a girl and lied about her on the forms, and they they took her in. But she was one of many... That wasn't uh, itself a commonly shared story, but the general pattern was common. So Judy Litton, another person who appears in the film, was there essentially because she was cross-eyed. And so she looked... mentally deficient and was treated as such but part of the problem why her reading scores were low and her social interactions were difficult was she couldn't see properly Uh, there wasn't a mental deficiency of of some kind as defined sort of by the, the law at the time so there were many many cases like that you know people who were recent immigrants whose English wasn't so good people who were from in in some cases from indigenous families were were there not that wasn't what the law said, but they ended up in these feeder institutions. And even if the
0: laws were themselves unethical um, to, I suppose, impose on anybody um, for sterilisation, but that people were also caught up in the legislation and didn't and didn't uh, qualify going by those rules that people would... You know, most people would say those rules shouldn't have been there anyway. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So on the one hand, the Alberta case was... I mean, it was just happened to be where I was, and I was very captivated by it. And once I had met and spent quite a lot of time with people like Leilani, uh, it, I guess it just completely changed my view of how I approached this. And so one thing we did was we went out and we got some uh, lo- funding for a large-scale project called Living Archives on Eugenics in Western Canada, and the film was not an intended consequence of that, but we, we worked intensively with a survivor-focused history um, of Eugenics in Alberta. And we thought that was important because we had people who could tell us what it was like inside these institutions, what they observed, what happened to them, uh, in their own They they were very, very clear about as clear as anyone can be about things that happened 30 or 40 years ago mm-hmm. in their past, and many of them had been since that time pretty much isolated from each other. So, one of the interesting things where we got people together telling their stories was they st- suddenly realised things that were in common and different. Uh, for example, between how boys and girls were treated in institutions because they were themselves segregated there, um, even if they overlapped in time at the institution, um, which was called the Provincial Training School initially, you know, f- uh, for uh, Fee- the feeble-minded and then they changed the name uh, over the course of time but it was still around uh, actually still some version of it is still it's only just recently been sort of closed uh, altogether um but it served as one of the major feeding institutions for, and we were trying to understand the mechanics how does this happen how do you end up with something that's uh i don't want to lessen the 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 wrong here by just saying you know, procedural wrongness but there was something very deeply wrong in, in well, sterilising in some sense normal kids or kids who you know, they might have done badly on IQ tests but they it's hard to think that this is really what the eugenic laws were meant to do if you try to put the best possible spin on it and not that you want to do that but sometimes it's good to put yourself in the position well what were people thinking what were they
3: Well, also coming do? after the second world war that where the, the idea of eugenics was, was very much kind of stigmatised in the wake of what happened in, in Germany
4: yeah, and that was one of the puzzles. People often ask about that. Well, what was what did people know about this in Alberta? I mean, the the, the other side of my involvement in this was uh, uh, some people might find interesting was that when I went back to my department after teaching this class and said, hey, do you, do you guys know anything about this history of eugenics? And they said, oh, yeah, we do because the founding chair of this department was the chair of the eugenics board which approved all these sterilizations for nearly its entire history. Uh, it was a guy called uh, John MacAchran and he was the longest serving provost which is a very high-ranking university position, like a vice-chancellor in Australia. Um, and he, he, he was uh, in that position until uh, 1945. So uh, he was on the Eugenics Board through all that time, still ran the Department of Philosophy, which became Department of Philosophy and Psychology, um, and then stayed on the Eugenics Board for another 20 years after he retired. And his, his, his signature is on over 4,000 sterilisation orders because there are about 4,800 sterilisation orders signed even though uh, about 3,000 people uh, were actually sterilised.
0: I wonder if, like in Australia, some university buildings might be named after
4: Yeah, I think him. we might be hearing something about that uh, tomorrow night, it would be my guess. So you could uh, see buildings uh, at the University of Melbourne and uh, I don't know where that discussion will go and I'll be relying on uh, colleagues who have much more experience than I do uh, of the Australian context so uh, obviously although i'm originally from australia i've uh, let's say been away for a long time mm. and only been back for a short amount of time so i don't have as much expertise on that but there are i think one of the things that this topic has sparked in other people and this was part of the point of the the project that we were engaged in was to get to get people to think beyond just the traditional picture of eugenics and don't think, well, this was something that was in the distant past and so so on. And don't think only about sterilization. Sterilization is a particular sort of policy. It's often explicitly framed in eugenic terms, but there are lots of immigration policies. I mean, the white Australia policy, one of the, in some Mm. sense, founding immigration policies uh, in in the country uh, is explicitly, uh, obviously racist. And it's, it's aimed at making this intergenerational sort of change or you you might think of as an intergenerational preservation of the sorts of people we want in future generations and there are continuing debates I think about that it's not that everything that's to do with say immigration restriction is eugenic in nature but you can see strains of this what we might call a a cultural form of eugenics in different kinds of policies Mm. that are enacted in Australia. And like you
0: can't marry uh, you know a white person can't marry a black person things like that which we've seen here but also in in the states
4: Yeah yeah for sure for sure and um, the other obvious sort of uh, connection here is with the you know, forced removal of uh, children uh, in order to so-called you know, civilize them to change their character in future generations, and and it was to solve. You know, this was I'm more familiar with this in, in Canada than in Australia. I mean, I, of course, I am familiar with stolen generations in Australia, but they had the residential school system in in Canada, and in some ways it, it ran parallel to the kind of system that was in in Australia. It was just sort of, in some sense, more deeply institutionalised and, and partly run by, by church uh, churches uh, in, in Canada and there was a lot of public attention because of the uh, public apology issued uh, by the Prime Minister of Canada uh, some years ago um, about the residential school system and it was a very big sort of political deal.
3: If you just just in, we're speaking with Rob Wilson, Professor of Philosophy at La Trobe University, all about an upcoming film screening and panel discussion uh, run by the Melbourne Free University tomorrow night called Surviving Eugenics and uh, Rob has written a book about this topic and also directed a film about it. And I want to talk a bit about the victims because the film uh, is um, really, I guess, startling in, in what actually happened to these people who were sterilised in, in Canada, often as children under false pretenses with, um, you know, thinking they were going in to have their appendix out, for example. Um, is there much of a push in, in Canada or, or elsewhere to ad- adequately compensate the, the victims of these kind of practices?
4: So in the early 2000s in the United States, there were a number of public apologies issued by um, state governors, uh, for example. So in uh, California, it was uh, considered in in Washington uh, state as well. Um, There were uh, recent uh, other actions. I mean, one of the questions, there's sort of compensation, which you can think of in some sense as a a voluntary move to make amends, though typically it's it's forced. <laughs> it's a forced move in the game. That was what happened in Alberta. So, Alberta got this reputation as being a place, and it was often cited in these American cases as setting a kind of precedent for apologizing and for uh, offering compensation. But that's not quite what happened. What happened with that there was an apology offered by the Premier, a person called Ralph Klein, but it was because Lilani caught him uh, off guard and he was on camera uh, and he had to say something quickly. Um, and the reality was that. His government actually fought paying any compensation to anyone. He actually tried to introduce a, a bill called Bill 28, which not many people, even in Alberta, know about, uh, which sought to limit the amount of compensation that anybody could get, no matter what had happened to them, to 150 thousand dollars. Now Lalani had been awarded 750 thousand dollars by this time, so you could see that you know uh, this seemed like a really uh, underhanded way to limit the rights of people. So there's some discussion of that in the in the film, and I. Particularly, I felt particularly strongly about having that in there because uh, when the bill was introduced on the on the on the floor in the state legislature in, uh, in Alberta, um, the conservative government had a very very strong majority. It could have gone through, but there was such an outcry about this, it was pulled the very next day. Uh, and so, because it wasn't actually passed, <laughs> there's there's no official record. I mean, there's a, a, a minimal official record you can dig it out, but uh, one of the lawyers I talked to said, "Yeah, you better get a copy of this because soon, you know, it's going to be hard to track down." Uh, this sort of record here, so I wanted to make uh, yeah, have a little bit of discussion about that in the, in the film. So, as, as you'll know, there's a bit of that there, and, and viewers can have a look at that themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. I suppose this is a very live issue about compensation, reparation from state-sanctioned, um, you, whether whether someone's been you know taken from their family, or, or we've just had the. Uh, the Royal Commission into uh, child sex abuse by a range of institutions uh, in Australia, and this idea of what comes next, and is there anything you think we could learn from what's happened with with the eugenics in Alberta in Canada?
4: Yeah, I, I certainly don't think there's a one size fits all sort of solution. These are all very delicate sorts of situations. There's lots of intricacies, but the the big picture is that there there's certainly some uh, you know minimally a, a, a moral onus on. State institutions and state leaders uh, who have had this history and they recognize that something 's gone very wrong in it to, to come out and say that and then to act on the on the basis of that now how that translates into you know compensation terms and, and so on you know is in some sense up for grabs that 's got to be negotiated in the local communities I think and you 've got to listen to the people who are most affected one thing that we 've worked on but didn't achieve in in alberta was we wanted to have some you know public memorials um just some places where people go and say here's you know not here's where this happened but you know here's a a statue for about lalani muir so one thing we did we did a little bit of guerrilla action as part of the project so we uh, renamed one of the bridges There are a group of women uh, known collectively as the famous five who are very active in the 1920s and 1930s for women's rights around voting and representation in um, uh, Canadian legislatures and and parliaments and they all have statues all over the, the place and things named after them parks and so on um, and they were all avid eugenicists <laughs> as well. Uh, uh, Emily Murphy, Emily Murphy Park is just down the road from where my office was. And there's a statue of her, you're talking about her advocacy, but they don't mention the eugenics explicitly. But she gave over 300 public speeches advocating <laughs> eugenics because um, not everybody could be a responsible, good, respect, you know, respectable sort of woman to to you know, give birth to the right kinds of children in, in her views. Very clear about that so we tried we renamed a bridge uh, downtown that linked two of these parks that were named after two of the famous five and we um had a running battle i can say this now i've left canada i guess uh with the uh the city in, in putting up little plaques and then being taken down and putting up little plaques and having them taken down and so on and that came about through you know the, there was a strong activist kind of component to the the project and i thought it was a appropriate sort of thing to do um but we didn't end up Establishing anything more permanent, that bridge is actually being destroyed now to to uh, make way for a new uh, light rapid uh, transit development in the, <laughs> in the in the city um, and it turned out to be hard even for my own university to they felt like a lot was at stake mm-hmm. in claiming this history I actually thought at one point that their, their, the funding from the the state uh, government would be uh, jeopardised if they came out explicitly and said too much and so forth too much. And that led to a bunch of tensions with the project. <laughs>
3: mm. Well, and there's, there's those kinds of, I guess, specific things that can be done in terms of uh, adequate memorials being being established uh, and compensation and that sort of thing. But, but there seems some pessimism from some of the people you speak to in the film about this sort of thing happening again. So So I wonder how much of, I, I guess, the project you're involved in is about kind of uncover, uncovering the, the patterns of thinking that have allowed these kind of practices to happen in the past to ensure that they don't happen again and, and feed into current policies of governments, whether in Canada or all around the world.
4: Yeah, I think, I think that's right. For me especially, uh, in some sense, that's what this book, The Eugenic Mind Project, is, a, is about. It's this project of this, uh, this eugenic way of thinking and how it manifests itself in different ways. And, and one obvious way that people have discussed... Uh, quite a bit in the in the philosophical, bioethical medical uh, literature is around pre, you know, issues around prenatal screening for um, you know genetic susceptibility or conditions that indicate uh, you know a future um, disease limitations uh, and so on. Uh, so perhaps the best, you know, most famous is trisomy 21, uh, which is in strongly indicative of, of Down syndrome and uh, so if you have prenatal screening connected with, uh, selective abortion regime of just those—you uh, you do change the character of the population uh, downstream, and you have advocacy organisations of people with Down syndrome saying, "Hey, this is about getting rid of us in future generations." And I think you know there's not an explicit policy that says that it's what it's for, but effectively, it's very hard to deny that's how it functions in in practice. So that's you know, this is th- there's a lot of debate in the literature about about that sort of case. But generally, what I'm interested in is getting people to think more broadly about. What are the roots of this sort of thinking? Where does it come from? How can you start to see bits of it coming out? And that's why I'm interested in this idea of cultural eugenics as well. Uh, There's a lot of focus around biotechnology and new methods for gene editing and ways of creating new kinds of people. But I think eugenics is the fundamental ideas start with the idea that there are people with different qualities and different worth as human beings. And I think we need to probe that intuition a little bit more deeply and get people to think in their own lives about what they do. And that was part of what motivated my involvement uh, also and, and deeply influenced by interactions with the um, sterilization survivors was to get that, you know, not just take it on the surface, say, oh, you know, we don't want to let this happen again. But, you know, how do we uh, get people to take this seriously firsthand from their own experiences? How can they take it up? How can they shift what they consider to be relevant here, and not just go along with the background assumptions that we take for granted about different kinds of people.
0: And what, I mean, how do you do you see, or do you see any link with the kind of online um, advertising? And I suppose people are, are, are doing sort of ancestry uh, tests and all sorts, sending off saliva swabs to labs mm-hmm. around the world to find out a little bit more about themselves. Do you see that in any way linked with this, or, or quite separate?
4: Well, I think it's, it's LinkedIn. There is a, you know, um, what our uh, ancestry is like, what our genetic past is like, uh, does correlate with, you know, what our genetic future will be like. And I think uh, one of the lessons of the history of eugenics is that people typically, both at a popular level and at a scientific level, have read too much into that. They've really had these big dreams about how much, for example, knowing that whole all of the uh, base pairs in the you know, uh, base pair sequences in the human genome through the Human Genome Project—all three billion of them—would tell us about, in some sense, who we are and what we can be and what we can modify. And, and that's just turned out to be false. Um, it doesn't tell us as much that much, partly because of a misunderstanding about genetics, its a connection to development and, and so on. Um, so there are those sorts of connections, and I guess that's one of the lessons is that this this eugenic thinking both more strictly defined and more loosely defined it it really it it runs pretty deep and it's and it taps into basic sorts of interests. you know take a trivial sort of example of course you want to do the best for your children now if it turns out that you you think you're doing better for your children by for example you know uh, modifying them in in some sort of way uh, before they get too far down a certain sort of path then you 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 might well do that as a parent um Many of the people, for example, that we found, um, when there was parental authorization, they did think that it was best for their own children to be sterilized. Um, And I'm not going to be in a position to tell people in every possible case that that's not right, but a lot of those decisions are informed by a bias against um, people with disabilities and a, a kind of ramping up of how how bad that condition Mm. would be, the worst case sorts of scenarios and so on. And so when you live in an ableist kind of society or when you live in a racist society, of course the judgments that people have about what's going to be best for sort of future generations are going to be informed by those judgments. So I think it's partly um, not beating people over the head with this but giving them the space to digest the complexities of their own situations Mm. and hopefully becoming more informed about their own personal lives and how they feed into public discussions and and so on.
3: I just want to ask briefly, we are just about out of time, but I'm given you've just returned to Australia after some time, uh, quite a a lot of time spent in North America and and Canada. Will you be continuing this kind of project in terms of speaking with with survivors and and continuing this kind of work you're doing here locally?
4: Yeah, well, I, I... I was in a unique position in in Canada, and, and I was involved in this work for over a dozen years uh, altogether. All so I don't expect the you know, immediate circumstances to be the same. But I'm very. I've just started a group called People, which is P E I P L, Philosophical Engagement in Public Life, and that's trying to get philosophers and people with philosophical philosophical interests together from across the universities and engage who want to be engaged in the public on a whole range of issues so I would expect that my background in working with eugenic survivors to be relevant to that I don't expect it to translate directly into the same kind of work but I'm very interested in working in schools uh, I'm involved in philosophy for children I expect to have more to do with the bioethics community a lot of the bioethics community and there's some discussion of this in the in the book is is you know, unduly in my view, uh, pro eugenic, and there's a big hub of that in Melbourne. It turns out, so there'll be people to engage with in in, in that at uh, uh, Monash and the uh, University of Melbourne, particularly. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for coming in and if you want to uh, continue the conversation um, with Rob, you can. Uh, tomorrow night uh, at the Thornbury Picture House, uh, there's an event happening it's called Surviving Eugenics, a film screening and panel discussion involving Rob uh, Wilson, uh, Suzanne Oldmeadow and James Bradley and uh, it sounds like it's going to be great having you in town, Rob.
4: Yeah, well thanks for having me and the film will start at 6.30 mm-hmm. and there'll be about 45 minutes of discussion at the, at the end of that and it's free and open to the public and I'm very excited to be partnering uh between people and uh the Melbourne Free University on this.
0: And um your first chance maybe to head down to the New Thornbury Picture House as well. Thanks for coming <laughs> Great. in. Great. Thanks for having me. This has been a podcast from 3RR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.